0: All right, so here we are in the book of Ruth. uh, And you can go ahead and turn to that. Just go to the book of Judges, and it's the next one up. Um, Why is it placed by uh, Judges? Because it's the same period of history. Judges, um, well, Ruth would fall inside some chapters of the book of Judges. Yeah, Ruth would fall fallen in the pages of, of Judges. We don't know exactly when, but we do know from the reading um, that Ruth's, you know, in this story, spans a time of when Israel was in disobedience and the Lord was chasing them all the way to the time in which the Lord began to revive them as a nation. And we'll see that as we go. So it's a period of years that is covered, but it's in the time of the Judges. And what do we know about the Judges? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were worshiping the false gods. They were breaking the covenant. They were uh, into idolatry. They were taking advantage of each other. It was a bad time in the history of Israel. This is where the book of Ruth falls. It's a wonderful story about two penniless widows and a wealthy landowner and how they come together and how the Lord does this. The major players in this book are Naomi, Ruth, And Boaz. And this is an account of how God is at work even when we don't know what his plans are. How's God working? How's God moving? And we will see that this is exactly what takes place. It's a a story about a kinsman redeemer. Uh, Boaz is going to be that guy. Ruth is going to marry Boaz. They're going to come together and they're in their family. They're going to give birth to one whose name is Obed. And he is going to be um, in the lineage of David and, of course, Jesus Christ as well. We begin at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, Went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So we got a crisis. We got problems that are going on. We understand why because it's a day of the judges and it's, it's, a, it's a famine. There is no food. And so they're going to t- depart from Bethlehem, which ironically enough is called what does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. House of bread. And they're leaving because there's no bread. And so they're going to leave from Bethlehem. You put that map up. They're going to leave from Bethlehem. And they're going to make their way over into Moab. And so we don't know the exact route that they took, but that is it. Yeah, there you are. So on the left-hand side, kind of a... um, Yeah, on the left-hand side of the Dead Sea, you have Bethlehem, which is just below Jerusalem. And then over in the right... Um, you can see that region of Moab. So they're 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 making a pretty good journey here, and they are leaving. Um, bread was the substance that God had provided for Israel during the wilderness wanderings. When they came into the land, He says, "You don't need this manna anymore, because this land is plentiful. You'll you, you don't need this supply from heaven. You're going to have plenty of rain. You're going to have plenty of fruitful crops. I am going to bless you." But of course, it's a famine. Jesus also said that he was that bread that followed them in the wilderness. And where was Jesus born? Yeah, which is called what? The house of bread. So the bread of life was born in this town. So this is his birth city. Wouldn't probably be right to call it his hometown. Nazareth was his hometown. But this was the city where he was born in fulfillment of the prophecies. And yet there's no bread Let's keep on reading verse 2. Then The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So, again, just working this idea of um, having no bread. So there is a crisis. They have no bread. What, what's the reason why there's no bread? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, we read, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey me, obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil, and I will send grass in your fields for your livestock, that you may eat and be filled, but they don't have it. So, what's going on here? Well, they're not earnestly obeying the Lord, they're, they're in a time of disobedience. Um, so, there's a promise that bread would be provided, but Deuteronomy, uh, just moving into the, the next verse, verse 16 says, Take heed to yourselves lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land that the Lord has given you. So th- this is exactly what's going on where it's not stated in this detail but the, the word of the Lord is certain and true. They're not receiving the blessing. They're receiving the, the, the curse that comes from disobedi- disobeying, and there they are. Now, the names of the family that's filling this crisis and the attention zeroes in on, and listen, there's only one reason why this family is, is singled out. And the reason is because they're in the lineage of Jesus. That's, the Bible's about Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament. And so wherever book you are, you want to be looking for where is Jesus in this story. And it's Clearly, when you get to the end, you, you'll see this. But the family's names are, are quite interesting. Elimelech has a, a great name, as, whose God is king. So, Melech being king. So, uh, Elimelech is whose God is king. That's a great name. Uh, Naomi has a, a beautiful name, too. It means sweetness or pleasantness. But then there are two sons, oh, that's a different story whose God is king in sweetness, when it came to naming names, they, it's, it's qu- quite sad. <laughs> Melon means sickly. And Kilion means pining or loss of vigor or health. <laughs> the, the interesting thing is both of these, all three of these men are going to die um, in this story. So the name's kind of interesting how this happens. So we had a crisis. We have the reason. There's no bread. We know why there's no bread. And then in verses 3 and 5 we read, Then uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, which companion or friendship is, is what her name means. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion, I mean, you saw that coming if you knew their name, right? I mean, sickly and pining, here they are. They died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. (laughs) What was needed in Israel was repentance. And they come up with a carnal solution. And their carnal solution is, let's go to Moab. That's not what was needed. What was needed is is for the nation to repent. And trying to find out, Uh, You know the 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 provision that you were lacking in the land because of disobedience, and going out into the world to try and make up for that which God and His correction is holding back from you is not a good idea. If you find yourself in a place of disobedience, and the Lord begins to correct you and chasten you, take it. He's kind. He's gracious. He's loving. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna flee. Don't flee. (laughs) Don't run from the chastening of the Lord. He loves you, and the, even the chastening is to, is to correct you in his love. So Elimelech, I'm going to say, now if I owe him an apology when I get to heaven, you can watch it happen. But I'm going to say of this family, he's running from the chastening of the Lord. Um, the consequence of sin in the nation of Israel is coming to bear upon him, and he leaves. Um, and they go to a land that worships False gods had historically been incredibly antagonistic to them and had a quite an interesting beginning. Um, not to hold that against them, but Moab was a, a nation that descended from the incestuous union of Lot and his eldest daughter. That's Moab. So, this is where they go. They should have stayed in Bethlehem and prayed for the blessing of the Lord. And surrendered themselves and say, in whatever way we can influence this nation to follow you and to seek you and to return to you, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. But instead, they run from the presence of the Lord. And that never is helpful. Searching for alternative means to replace that which God has taken away is not a fruitful endeavor. So if you're missing the blessings and the promises of the Lord in your life, you need to ask him, why? Lord, why are these things not present in my life? And then to sit and to wait upon him. If you're lacking joy or peace a provision, if it's a result of sin against God, don't think you're going to be able to replace it by running away from him. And so this is what they're doing. The only hope they had, and Naomi is going to learn this, Was to go back to the land where God said, I want you to be. To live inside the boundaries and the borders that was given to her family. All the way back into the days of Joshua. And to sit and to wait upon the Lord for his blessings to return. They left because of famine, which means they were afraid of dying. They left and 75% of the family died. They, They ran from what they were afraid of and they ran right into it. Now listen. We're going to see a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and his grace, even in the midst of what I'm saying was a failure on the part of the family to run and hide. Now, again, if I get to heaven, Elimelech pulls me aside and says, wait a minute. You know, this is this is a part you didn't know and didn't understand. Why did you blame me? I'll have to apologize to him. But I'm thinking this is this is a a mistake. So they get over there um, and they give their sons, they get Um, They get daughters from Moab to marry them. Now listen, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1, there are um, nations that are mentioned, seven nations that are mentioned, that they were not to take uh, wives from. Moab is not one of them. However, the Moabites were still incredibly um, wicked and idolatrous people. So while well, you may be able to make it the case, and some do, that according to the letter of the law, this was not a forbidden people, the spirit of the law is don't allow your heart to be taken away by intermarrying those that are worshiping false gods. So they're, they're running a risk here. Solomon's great downfall came through the ungodly marriages, hundreds of them, to women who had turned their hearts away, turned his heart away from following the Lord we're going to see that later, um, Ruth is going to end up marrying. So one of the widows is going to end up marrying a Jewish man, Boaz. And, but at that point, she's a believer. She makes the confession of the Lord. So um, the story turns out. And a lot of people love to use the account of Ruth to justify dating and marrying unbelievers. That's a really bad idea. There's nowhere in this passage that you can take that from. And if you're going to look at this and say, well, it worked out, and that's your basis, well, I can show you a lot of people who it didn't work out for. And so this is not a passage that should do that. And when Ruth marries Boaz, she's, she's in the family of faith at that point. So, of course, the New Testament tells us what is not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so... We are to be, you know, we should see our children, um, you know, courting, dating, marrying believers. That's the choice that we should be making as well. And so this is the desire so that the heart of, of our children or ourself is stays connected to the Lord. Because when you have two people that are pulling in the same direction to follow Jesus Christ, it makes it so much easier. It's not to say that if you have disobeyed and you've re- repented of that, that, The grace of God is not upon you. It absolutely is. But as a warning before anybody would step into that, there it is. Don't do that. We keep on looking at this passage. Pick up at verse 6 through 18. Verses 6 through 18, um, we see that the prodigal returns. Naomi has been called the prodigal daughter of the Old Testament. So like that prodigal son who left and went to the far country and then came back with nothing. Well, she is like that prodigal daughter. She has left the land, and she comes back with nothing but one daughter-in-law who is a widow. Then she arose, verse 6, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So they must have been earnestly obeying it at this time, right? The, the land is producing. And um, so they come back. It must have been one of those times of revivals. you know. Pick your judge, if you will, and say it's it's one of these judges and coming back at that time. So Naomi returns home geographically. But I I believe this is a picture that we can pick up on of when a believer, like that prodigal, the, the one coming back to the Lord, she came to her senses and realized she was better off back in home in the provision of the Lord than out in the world without the provision of the Lord. And so she's going to come back. But what we're going to see is that God is incredibly gracious. Jeremiah thirty-one twenty says, "Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I corrected him. Right? I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him," says the Lord. So, even when there is disobedience and the correction happens, like in this verse here, the Lord is willing to be merciful. That's good news for us tonight. God is willing to pardon, to forgive, and bless, and pour out his grace upon you as you return to him. Come back to him. But a lot of people would have you, especially Satan, would have you to believe and to think that there's no place to come back to the Lord. That what you used to have, that's gone. You can come back, but you're you're back row now, you're back row. You can come late to church, you can leave early, don't touch the things of the kingdom. You're just, no, that's not, that's not biblical. The Lord is, he earnestly remembers you, even if he's had to chasten and correct you, and he wants to show you mercy. And so um, a couple of other verses here, let's read. Um, Therefore she went out from the place where she was. Verse seven, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way uh, to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi, somewhere along this road, said to her daughters, I ah, just go home. I mean, she's not a happy camper. She really is not. And we'll see more of this in just a moment. But she just, she's on her way home. She's like, what am I doing bringing these girls? Just, and she tells him, don't follow me. I can't do anything for you. I have nothing to hand to you. Um, it's nice that you're doing this, but there's nothing. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. And Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb? Now this enters into the story, the plot of the story here, that they may be your husbands. So if a, somebody lost a, um, a husband and a child had not been born, then the nearest relative, a brother um, in most cases, who was not married, would then take on that responsibility of raising up a child. And so this is what she's referring to, the kinsman redeemer. She's saying, you know, there's no way I'm going to have any more sons, so you're not going to have husbands. Turn back, my daughters go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, so if I get like, well, I hope so, Um, and it happened tonight, you're going to have a long time to wait before you have a husband. they got to grow up. And so she just says, no, just, just go back home. But look at the end of verse 10. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. that He's raised his fist against me, actually. Now, is this her reckoning? I've disobeyed and I've been corrected. I guess you could go that way. But to me, it, as you read it, it feels more like sour grapes. More like bitterness, which hold on to that thought. It doesn't seem like there's a coming to a place of understanding I've disobeyed. Uh, Then they lifted up their voices. Verse 14, wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Her name means friend or companion. It's kind of interesting. She's going to be a companion. She's going to cling. She's going to be a faithful friend that does not depart. A faithful daughter-in-law. And she's going to stay. Verse 16, Ruth said, entreat me not to leave or to turn back from following after you for wherever you go I will go wherever you lodge I will lodge your people shall be my people and your God my God where you die I will die and there I will be buried the lord all capitals covenant name of god yahweh yahweh do so to me and more also <clears throat> if anything but death parts you and me wow her name, she's living up to her name isn't she um, a companion, a friend, somebody that's faithful. In verses 18, um, yeah, in verses 18, uh, well, in verses 15 through 18, we see that Ruth follows her home. And, uh, you know, and then in verse 19, we're going to see the cost of disobedience. But let's talk for just a little bit about this, this commitment, this unswerving commitment to be there. Um, Ruth has had limited exposure to Yahweh, but yet she mentions his name, right? She says, "I'm, you know, I understand who he is." So she, they, they did teach her something, and she says, no, I'm I'm going to be with you. I'm willing to leave my family and go with you and go back." Um, And it's an unswerving commitment to follow the Lord even into difficulty. And in this, she remind you can pick out a lot of people in the Bible. Who does she remind you of? Well. I'll tell you a couple of people that she reminds me of. She reminds me of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were warned by Nebuchadnezzar. It's Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And he says, you better bow down and worship We're not going to bow down and worship you. Well, will throw you in the fire. Well, our God can take care of that. But if he, but if he doesn't, if he doesn't deliver us, um, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We're going to be faithful and committed to following the Lord no matter what. And, and that's what you hear Ruth saying. Probably with not the same degree of knowledge as these guys. But at that same level of commitment and understanding. I've got to do what the Lord is calling me to do. She was sensing this. Uh, Job one twenty one. it says. Uh, naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And most people's re- response. And therefore that's why I don't follow the Lord. But that's not what he says. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. I worship Yahweh. I mean, so I've had, I've had good things. I've had bad things. But I worship the Lord. And he was unswerving in his commitment to follow the Lord. And, and Ruth is saying, I'm going to follow you no matter what. And so I just encourage you, establish your faith in the Lord. That you might stand in the face of any trial. For Ruth, it was her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, and her husband dying. And so she's like, I'm following the Lord. I'm, I'm not going to turn away. Are you establishing your faith so that you could endure any trial? And, of course, that's a, that's a hard thing to kind of answer in one sense, right? Because you don't, you don't know what's out there. But I, I can tell you this. If you're, if you're not in the word and you're not in prayer and you're not in fellowship, if you're not living for and seeking first the kingdom of God, you can find that you may be like that house that was built upon the sand. And when the storms came, it wiped it out. Build your house upon the rock. Build it upon Jesus. Follow him. Obey him. That you might be able to endure the trials that come. All right. So as you look at the end of the chapter, um, verse 19 down to um, 20. Well, just before. We'll stop just before we get there. 19 through 21. um, We see the cost of disobedience. Now, the two of them... Went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Is this pleasant? Is this sweet old Naomi? But she said to them, Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me sweet, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So, again, is this repentance? Mm, I don't think this is repentance. I think this is bitterness. And that's what she's saying. So, you know, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. Because that's, that's the way, my, there's nothing sweet about my life anymore. Everything's turned bitter. She went out full. It's come back empty. Trial and hardships in the presence of the Lord. They're hard enough. But to go through trials and hardships outside of the promises, out in the world trying to replace what God has taken away because of disobedience, that's a terrible place to go through trials. That's a really, really hard place. There's no way that God was going to allow prosperity for them outside the place he had prepared for them. They weren't going to prosper in Moab because that's not where they were supposed to be. And you know, the name change from sweetness to bitterness, that is the way it always is when you run from the Lord. It's always going to go from sweet to bitter. It's not, you know, and this is what the enemy loves to have us think it's going to be sweeter over there. That's going to be sweeter. That sin's going to be sweeter. That's what you really need. That's what's really going to allow you to be yourself and express yourself. The reality is it's going to bring bitterness into your life. It's going to bring emptiness into your life. Not fullness. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life, and you might have that what? More abundantly. Fullness. And so she left full, um, she claims and it's coming back empty. So sad. So um, you hear the expression of the cost of her disobedience. She doesn't put it in words like that, but I believe that's accurate. Verse 22, we see that deliverance is provided. So Naomi uh, Naomi, (laughs) returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest. Significant, isn't it? They left when they was, they left the house of bread in a time of famine, and now she's returned to the house of bread, and it is barley harvest. There is no more famine. It is a good time to glean. It's a good time to get provision. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Gleaning was a way that provided for the poor. So, chapter two. Uh, Ruth is going to go into um, a field to glean. So there was a relative of Naomi, Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. So whoever's going to let me. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So what does it mean to glean? It means to pick up that which remained after the harvest. Okay, And she happened to come to part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. So that's her father. Elimelech is her father-in-law. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants who was in charge of the reaper's, Whose young woman is this? He's single. That's going to become very clear. (laughs) Who's that? Who's that that lady over there? And so um, he's interested. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So, I mean, what, what do we learn about her? Well, she's committed to her mother-in-law. Um, she's come and she's asked permission and she's a hard worker. And she's, she's been out here all day long doing this. And um, so, obviously, she must have been a pretty lady because Boaz like, and who's that? But she's also a virtuous lady. She's also a lady that was willing to work hard. And so this is the description that he's given. But the the significant piece here is that there is a family connection. Gleaning was a program, a welfare program, that the Lord instituted in the Law of Moses. You remember we were not in that portion of Scripture, or we were in that portion of Scripture not so long ago. But Deuteronomy 24, 20, and 21, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. So you can only go once. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. That's who this is. When you gather grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. So don't go through a second time. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So this was a program that if you didn't have means to get food at harvest time, you know, throughout the land of Israel, um, you know, the landowners were to leave it so that those that were in need can come and they could get. Now they're going to have to work. They're going to have to work, but there was a provision made for them. So you see the care for those um, that had to be in that place of, of you, know, or, you know, being destitute, and having to go and work somebody's field. The Lord provided for this. And so what we're going to see is that Boaz is just going to show all kinds of kindness and favor to Ruth. And uh, so basically verses 8 through 17 is where you see this kindness um, that's shown to her. Uh, So then Boaz said to Ruth, uh, You will listen, my daughter, will, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here. I want to keep my eye on you. But stay close by my young women. Let your eye be on the field which they reap. And go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? They're not going to harass you. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young uh, men have drawn. So you're welcome to our provisions. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you've come for refuge. Well, Boaz, that word of blessing is going to come to pass in more ways than you can realize. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. No, Boaz said to her at mealtime, hey, come over here. You can eat with us. So you see all this kindness. Um, In verse 15, she goes out to glean again, and he says to the young men that are working, saying, hey, let her go wherever she wants. I mean, if she gets ahead of you guys, let her. And if she's right behind you, drop a bunch, Because this is part of the the gleaning. If you dropped it, you couldn't pick it up. So the end result is that she goes home um, at the end of the day with a ton of grain. I mean, she's just loaded down. Um, What we see in verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. All right, so she's, she's threshing it. And it was about an ephah of barley. And so they've estimated on the low end, this would have been about... 35 pounds of grain. And so she's going to kick, and and some estimates are uh, up to 50 pounds. Um, So kind of the the weight difference was was the the quality of the grain, right? So she is, I mean, she's hit the load, right? So she comes home, verse 18, she went to the house, and and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? Where did you go grocery shopping? Where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz And Naomi's bright lights. Come on. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of close relatives. He's a kinsman. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men and that people don't. Uh, The people do not meet you in any other field. So don't only stay there. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So um, Ruth understands the Lord is showing uh, kindness and favor. And she has stumbled into the right field. She's been sovereignly guided into the right field. The Lord knew what he was doing. She didn't. She had no idea. But the Lord knew and was guiding her steps. Chapter 3. And here's where we begin to learn a little bit more about this that uh, Naomi had referred to earlier. I, I don't have sons for you, even if, as you get married and have children. And they could be husbands for you. We're going to learn a little bit more in this chapter about the, the kinsman redeemer because it didn't apply just to um, raising a, a, a son. It also applied to buying fields and, you know, buying somebody out of slavery. So here in verses 1 through 5, Naomi instructs Ruth about the law of the kinsmen. So she says uh, to her, her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young man you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore... Wash yourself, anoint yourself. You've been in the field. You kind of stink. Get clean. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So, Near of kin, she's a kinsman redeemer. The word um, for this is, is or the word for redeem is goel. And it means to act as a kinsman redeemer, avenge, revenge, ransom, uh, do the part of a kinsman, to act as a kinsman, to do the part of next of kin, a kinsman redeemer, by marrying a brother's widow to beget a child for him, to redeem. From slavery to redeem land to exact vengeance. So, all of this is kind of wrapped up in that, that simple word redeem, right? There's a lot that's packed into it that we, maybe we wouldn't necessarily understand. And, and this comes out of, I'm mean, just going to let you read it on your own, but Leviticus 25, 25 through 28. So, that's the reference, Leviticus 25, 25 through 28. And you can see there um, the right that is given to somebody to buy a field back if you're near of kin and that kinsman had lost the field. God didn't want the land to go outside of the family because it was their inheritance. So he provided a way that when somebody is about to sell it, they could come and say, hey, I'm about to sell the land. You're the closest relative. Do you want to buy it? I have no money. And then, you know, they maybe go to the next person. But eventually, if they couldn't, then they would sell it outside of the family. And so that's, what was going on here. Um, The idea of raising up or having the responsibility to raise up an offspring for a childless man who had died, and that's what um, Naomi was referring to earlier, comes from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her Take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. <clears throat> and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So your, your name continue to go on. There's an example of this that takes place going back in time, back in Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. And... Um, where Judah tells Onan to go into uh, Tamar, his brother's uh, wife. Um, you know, her brother had passed away, and now it was time for um, you know him to take her as wife. And so you have this whole story, and it, it develops. But eventually, she ends up um, receiving a um, uh, you know a family member, and, and she gives birth to a son named Perez, which is interesting because. Boaz is a descendant of Perez. So you have this scene that took place earlier in the history of the family, where a brother stepped in, and and well, actually it was dad, and it's a whole other story. I'm not even going to get into it, but his father-in-law, and um, ends up the child is Perez. And now here we are, uh, generations later, and Boaz is about to step up and to be the kinsman redeemer. It's just interesting how all this fits together. So in verse 6, and I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation, mainly because of the way verse 9 is is read. So I've been reading from the New King James, but here's uh, the New Living Translation, verse 6. So he went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth. She replied. And spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. You are my, the Hebrew word is, goel. And so, the, the uh, New King James, um, It just the way it's worded, it, it, it doesn't really, I think, translate um, Goel well, very well. What she says is, um, uh, yeah, let's we'll see, verse nine, verse 9, let me read it to you. It says, then he said, blessed are you, uh, Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end. Oh, that's verse 10, sorry. And she said, who, uh, who are you? So he answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Now if you're reading that and you don't know all that's packed into being a close relative, so I think the New Living Translation, it says, you are my family redeemer. So we read this story, it's like she's uncovering his feet, she's laying out there on the threshing floor by him where all the grain is, and he wakes up and spread, you know, your cloak over me. What's going on here? Well, you may read a lot of those cultural things and I'm like, I don't get it, but When you read the story, the context is going to fill in all the blanks for you. Um, So she's saying, hey, you're my family redeemer. I don't have a child. He knew that. My husband's dead. He knew that. And um, so she's saying, will you do what you're supposed to do? Will you take me as your wife? And so uh, one, one author writes this about the cloak. It says, The gesture of a man covering a woman with his garment was a symbolic act, which according to near customs signified the establishment of a new relationship and the symbolic declaration of the husband to provide for the sustenance of the future wife. So this, there's a lot going on in here. She is proposing marriage. That's what's happening. Like, hey, you want to marry me? You should marry me. The word says you should marry me. I don't know much about this, but I've been instructed that I am to do this. And so so how does Boaz respond? Uh, Well, he's all in. Then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. So you're really pretty. And everybody knows that you're a godly lady. And I accept your proposal. I want to do that. However, right? However, verse 12. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. So I'm close, but I'm not at the top of the list. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you. So if he's going to be the Goel, the Redeemer, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until the morning. And so uh, he's like, listen, I I am all in, and I say I do, but there's one gotcha. I've got to go try and take care of that in the morning, um, and I'm going to do that. And he gives her some more grain. In the morning, departs. Verse 16, she comes back and gives the update to Naomi. I don't know if Naomi slept that night. The way it reads is like she is, she's just salivating over the opportunity of what God is doing. And she can just watch this thing unfolding in front of her. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, uh, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. He wants to marry you. He's going to be on top of business. Don't worry. It's all going to work out. So chapter 4, Boaz uh, goes and has the meeting and eventually he becomes the man and he is going to be the redeemer. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there and behold the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside friends, sit down here. So he came and came aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So that you can imagine the relative's like, what's going on here? I'm being called to sit down where all the major decisions are made got ten people here. Then he said to the close relative uh, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of the land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, tell me then I, that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it and I am next after you. And he said, I'll buy it. It's okay, great, you can buy it. However, there's a little catch. There's a little catch here. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. You don't just get a field. You're also going to get a Gentile bride. Ah, and the close relative said, that's not going to work for me. That's going to mess up my home. <laughs> I mean, you can read it, but he says, you yeah, know, this is going to mess up the inheritance. I think it would mess up more than just your inheritance. Um, but he's like, yeah, I, I can't do it. I cannot redeem it. And so then he takes off his sandal. He gives it to him. This was kind of a, uh, the, the way in which it was acknowledged. I'm not going to be the kinsman redeemer. And then, and actually you can read in other places, and if a man was unwilling to do this, that um, you not only take off the sandal, but the woman would then come up, does anybody know what she would do? She would spit in his face. Um, So there's not gonna be spitting in this chapter. But, you know, if a man was like, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not interested in you, it was a sign of disrespect and whatever. Now, this circumstance (laughs) is different. so the, the elders all saw this, verse 11. We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel. Listen to this, this blessing. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, right? The, uh, the women who gave birth to the nation of Israel. The two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper, prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Well, here we are in Lynchburg. They, they made it to the fame, didn't they? May your house be like the house of Perez. I just gave you the background to that. So they were making the connections between the kinsman redeemer of Perez. And now it's happening again. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give to you from this young woman. So what's going to happen? Well, they're like, may it just be good stuff. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, and she became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor woman came, uh, gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and his name shall be called Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of King David. And it's through his lineage that Jesus will be born. And so you have the, the, uh, the genealogy that's given um, from Perez going on down to the birth of David. And so, it's just interesting to see how the Lord establishes these laws in the Old Testament that when we read them, that we can read over them like, are you kidding me? Beat the olive tree, don't drop this, drop that. And What happens here? And oh, This is just, it doesn't have any significance. And oh, what's this whole thing about the kinsman redeemer? I don't need to worry about that. That's Old Testament. And yet, Worked into the story of the Old Testament and the law of Moses were these laws that were going to have a direct impact upon the lineage of our Lord. Quite amazing. I'm glad I made it through the book because I wanted to now take the time and the time that we have remaining here. And I want to talk about how Jesus is our Goel. Remember how we talked about what Goel is? It's a redeemer. Somebody has to be near of kin. This account that we just gone through is a wonderful picture of all that Jesus has done for us. If you will, he is our spiritual Boaz. There are three qualifications to be a kinsman redeemer. You had to be related, you had to be able to pay, and you had to be willing to do so. You had to be related, you had to be able to pay, and you had to be willing to do so. Well, Jesus came... And he was born as a man, where? In Bethlehem. Why do we have to have the incarnation? Because the second person of the Godhead, before his birth in Bethlehem, would not have qualified to be a redeemer on the first point. He would not be a relative. But when Jesus came and was born, he took on human flesh and he becomes kin to all of us, if you will. He takes on humanity. You know, there was a book that was written a while ago, and somebody, you know, it's sad how many people in church got excited about it, but the, the author says, would it really be that big of a deal if you found out, you know, that this incarnation thing, the virgin birth wasn't real, or the incarnation wasn't all that we thought it would be? Yeah, it's a really big deal. Because we need a Redeemer, but a Redeemer has to be near of kin. God... Being a spiritual being in heaven is not related to us. But when his son came and took on human flesh and was born as a man, not forfeiting any of his deity, he now becomes the God-man and he is able. Uh, He's a relative. And he's also able to pay the price of redeeming man. He is sinless, right? Um, And he was willing to make the sacrifice. That's so clear. What was the redemption price that Jesus paid? We don't know the price that Boaz had to pay, but we know the price that Jesus had to pay to redeem us. What is the price? 1 Peter 1 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with the corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He had to spill his blood. That was the price that we needed to be redeemed. To buy us out of the slave market of sin, he had to cleanse us. And just like Boaz, a Jewish man from Bethlehem, Jesus has also taken a Gentile bride. Now listen, Israel, many that have put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, and they are not Gentile. But for the most part, the church is made up of Gentiles. Um, Yeah, really, since early... Um, in in the history of the church, and the Lord brought and has brought us into Him. Boaz um, redeemed a field. That's how it was all set up with the near relative. Hey, you want to buy a field? Yeah. Well, when you buy the field, you get a little bonus prize with the field. You get a bride. Well, I'm not into the bride. I've got a bride. I've got kids. I don't think they're. Gonna... I go home. This is not going to go well. There's going to be some you know rivalry, and I'm I don't want to do that. So I want the field, but I don't want the bride. But Jesus came, and he wants both the field and the bride. Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field so he can get what's in the field. Well, Jesus has come, and he is redeeming this earth as well. But really, the treasure for him is you. It's, it's those that he is saving. In Revelation chapter 5, turn with me over there. I bet you didn't think we were going to go there. Revelation chapter 5. We'll we'll start at verse 1. We have a scene recorded in heaven that has a lot of similarities to what we just read about in the book of Ruth. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, Jesus, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out from the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So. He comes verse 8. Now he who had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. So, in this heavenly scene, Jesus is the one who opens the scroll. There's a question about it, it has seven seals. And so there is this document that is been sealed. And if you take the time, I'm not going to go and read this, but if you would go over into Jeremiah, you just write it down as a reference, Jeremiah 32 verses 6 through 29. You will find Jeremiah buying a piece of land, and he buys the land, and he'll, he's going to seal one of them, one of the documents, and the other's going to leave um, unsealed. But what he says is inside this document is all the details and the transactions that are related to buying a field. And so it's for this reason, and there's been other um, archaeological discoveries where they have found scrolls that are, that are just like this, or similar to this, and they are often title deeds to properties. So there are certain ways in which it would be redeemed. And you had to meet certain you know, requirements. And so this is what we believe is in the hand of the Lord. is this title deed to the earth. There's weeping. There's crying. Who, who's going to redeem us? Who's going to make things right? And when they said, well, nobody's found worthy. Oh my goodness, nobody's found worthy. You mean the world's going to stay in this fallen, sinful, desperate state that it is? Oh, don't cry. There's one that's worthy to take the scroll. And it's the Lamb of God. And he is able to redeem. And so I don't think you can be definitive that this is it. But I think there is a high degree of likelihood that we're talking about the title deed to the earth, which is an interesting thing to even reference, the title deed to the earth. Why is that? Well, Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and everything that moves on it. Adam and Eve were given the earth. Take care of it. Have dominion over it. This is yours. The world was free from knowledge of evil. The environment was perfect. There was no rivalry between uh, man and the animal world. There was no sin. There was perfect fellowship between God and man. But then Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3. And when he did this, he relinquished ownership because he had disobeyed God and had obeyed Satan. We read this in the New Testament, Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. Adam became a, a slave and forfeited what had been given to him. And Satan boasts of that. As a matter of fact, he boasts of that to Jesus himself. In the temptation, Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to this, all this authority I will give to you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. Well, when was it delivered to him? I think it's Genesis 3. When Adam sinned, he lost dominion. He presented himself a slave to obey him and that was all forfeited. And, And Satan says, it's mine and I'll give it to whoever I want. Now, if this was not true, you would expect Jesus to say, it's not yours. But what does he say? Um, You know, therefore, if you worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He said, I'm not going to worship you. But he doesn't dispute what he's saying. I'm just not going to worship you. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Again, another verse that shows that it's been transferred into his hands. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. He's a God of this age, small G, but he's a God of this age. He's the one that has a world under his sway, which means this: don't blame God for the state of this world. Blame the God of the, You can blame a God. But don't blame Yahweh. Blame the God of this age, Satan, for what he has done. He's the reason why. He's the one that has made this all that it is. And so I think it's important for us to know this. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. I think it's a, I think it's a verse that's worth so much study. And it's often overlooked. But look at this verse in light of what we've just read. Speaking of the Lord, it says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Well, when's that going to happen? When Jesus grabs the scroll and he opens the seven seals and he says, I'm taking it back. When is that going to happen? Well, you read the book of Revelation and you'll find out It's going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation at the second coming of Christ. When he comes back to this earth, he's coming back to save Israel. He's coming back to judge the nations. He's coming back to rule and reign upon this earth. He's going to take it. And all is going to be under subjection to him. And so um, he's done everything that needs to be done. It's all his. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives, but it's not finished yet. Again, the the illustration I like to give is that Jesus delivered the knockout punch to Satan when he rose from the dead. And Satan is on the way down. He's hit the mat. And now there's the 10 count, all right? And we're somewhere between, I don't think we're at one. I don't think we're at five. I think we're really, really close. You can put whatever number you want on it. But it's not long before there's going to be 10 and it's all going to be wrapped up like that. And the Lord will rule and reign. He's, he's a kinsman redeemer. He, he wanted the field. Or he wanted what's in the field. And, that, and that's, that's mankind. But he also has to buy the field. What is the price to buy the field to get the bride? Oh, it was his blood. And he paid that price. You know, John was weeping at the idea that nobody could redeem the world. But there was one, found one, who was able to redeem. And he is our Goel. He is our kinsman redeemer. His blood was a ransom price to buy us from the slave market. Remember I said you could buy a field. You could take up a bride. You could also buy somebody out of the slave market. If you had a relative that had sold themselves into slavery, as a kinsman redeemer, you could go and buy them out. Jesus has done all three of these things, hasn't he? He so perfectly fulfills this. You can't tell me that this book has been written by man. I mean, there's two, it's too interconnected down to the, the most minute details of like, you know, gleaning you know, grain in a field. And yet it becomes central to the story of his lineage. And the kinsman redeemer, I mean, how could you over thousands of years in different languages and different conditions from being a fig picker to being, you know, writing scripture to being one that sat in a in, in palace writing scripture And all of them write together one story of what? Redemption. And so Ruth, as you read it, it's a great love story. It's a great love story, right? It's a story of redemption. Who doesn't like a story of redemption? It's a story of how God works behind the scenes. And he works things out using his word. Using his word. In ways that you wouldn't even anticipate had you not seen it. But it also, as we just said, it's a foreshadowing of how Jesus, a descendant um, of of Boaz, uh, came and redeemed. And it's not all under subjection yet. He's delivered the knockout punch at the resurrection. Satan is falling and he's on the ground and is being counted down. right? And we're going to get to that, that final count very soon. And then we will see a world under the authority, not of Adam. We'll see a world not under the authority of the God of this age, but we're going to see a world, a literal reign of Christ upon this earth. We're going to see it, we're going to see the way God wants it to be. And that's going to be a glorious, glorious time that, we look, that we're looking forward to, where he will rule and reign upon this earth. This is what the testimony of Scripture is. It's not allegory. It's not hyperbole. It is what is going to happen. He is a kinsman redeemer. He bought a field. He's going to own the field. He's going to rule the field. And we're all going to be very happy with what, how he does that. So what a glorious story. I hope the book of Ruth just like opened up. And you'll take some time to go back and study and read these things together. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's yours. It's your word, Lord. It's so clear. It's so obvious of how you've put this together. Weaving stories, love stories, together with technical parts of your law. And how to take care of poor people. All the way to your son. To the temptation. To the book of Revelation. To the day when you come back. At your second coming. To the day in which... You came and you redeemed us. And you bought us out of that slave market of sin that we had sold ourselves into. And you came to, re- to, to redeem us. We're grateful for it, Lord. Our words come up short, but you've asked for our words. You've asked for our words, so we do give you glory. We do say thank you. We love you, Lord. I want you just to ponder for a second. First part of it, we see the family running from the Lord. They went out full and they came back empty. Her name was sweet, pleasant, but boy, the reality was life had become bitter. If you've run from the Lord, maybe you're not far enough down that path that things have turned bitter in your life. Well, come back now. But if you are far down that path and life is bitter, let Naomi speak to you. It's not too late to come back. The Lord is gracious and compassionate and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He loves you and he will pour out his grace upon you. Did Naomi earn this favor? Did she have Something to do with this great grace that came upon her family? Not at all. So God is going to show you grace as you come back to Him. And you're going to go from having been sweet to bitter back to sweet again. That's what the Lord does. Ask Him. Leave Moab right now. Walk away from Moab. Be done with it. Come back into the promised land. Come back into the boundaries that God has drawn for you to walk in and live in. This is your place. It's in the kingdom of God, following your Savior, Jesus, the one that shed his blood to buy you out of that, that, that's your. Those are your boundaries. You live under, under him, not out in the world.